It comes from Matthew 5, I'm sorry, Matthew 6, uh, starting in verse 27. I'm sorry, Matthew 5. <laughs> so it's one of those mornings. Starting in verse 27, it says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her, with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than all of your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, just thank you for this morning. And as Brandon comes up, Father, I pray that you just be with him. Uh, thank you for your servant, your vessel, Lord, and speak through him now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mike. Good morning. <clears throat> this morning, our journey through the Sermon on the Mount is uh, taking us to a discussion on uh, lust and sexual purity. And so, um, of course, Pastor Ryan's on vacation. <laughs> Uh, it did just work out that way. I'm sure it wasn't intentional. <laughs> I, I want to give just a little bit of a disclaimer this morning. Um, I intend to be just a, a little bit blunt with us this morning because I know that lust is a prevalent sin within our culture. And uh, while lust is not limited to pornography, uh, I want to share with you some statistics uh, that I came across uh, in my study this week. 40 million Americans regularly visit pornographic websites. And 47% of families reported that pornography is a problem in their home. Age 11 is the average age that an American child is exposed to pornography. And 94% of them will have been exposed by age 14. And that's boys and girls. Unless we think this is not a problem in the church, 70% of youth pastors report that teens come to them for help with pornography. And 68% of church-going men, including 50% of pastors, say that they view porn on a regular basis. And when we look at younger men, men under the age of 25, that number goes up to 78%. And it's not just men. 87% of Christian women uh, report that they have watched pornography. And for women under 25, 33% of them report viewing it on a regular basis. And 69% of pastors, they report that porn has adversely affected their church. And folks, I would say that New City Church would be on that list. Now, many of you, men and women and couples, you've shared with me and with other church leaders your own struggles. And I know that many more of you have been living with the secret shame of your sin and that you're afraid to admit it 
to anyone. You're terrified that confessing it will bring an end to your marriage or, or relationships, your job, and your reputation. And you may wonder how I know that. Well, no, God is not telling me all of your secret sins. I know this because I myself lived for years in the church, hiding a secret life of sexual sin. And it was in the halls of addiction recovery that I learned the doctrines of grace firsthand as I came out of denial and turned my life over to the care and control of Jesus Christ and confessed my sins and made some amends and then began to carry the message of the gospel to others. So I hope you'll have some grace for me this morning, that you'll forgive me if I get a bit too direct or maybe a little bit passionate about our need to be seeking purity in our lives. See, I know firsthand how amazing is God's grace. And if you're living in bondage to sexual sin today, I want you to be able to experience that as well. So this morning, we're continuing in on our Kingdom Culture series. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is a sermon that Jesus gave at the beginning of his ministry. See, he's about to start having these interactions with Pharisees where he's going to be going toe-to-toe with them, challenging their message of salvation through self-righteousness. And so I think that this, this early sermon, he, he begins by being crystal clear. I am not here to abolish the law, but I am here to fulfill it. Yes, he's going to challenge this notion of, of self-righteousness, but he's not replacing it with licentiousness. He's actually calling us to an even higher standard. Matthew 5.20 Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, last week, Ryan tackled the subject of murder. And Jesus says, oh, you haven't murdered anyone? Well, have you ever called anyone a name? Have you ever lashed out at someone in anger? Have you ever insulted someone? well, then you've broken the spirit of this law in your murderous heart. And this week, we're kind of getting more of the same. So Jesus is acknowledging the sin of adultery, but then he's going on to reveal the heart of God for this standard. And so here's how I want to go about our time uh, today. First, we'll take a look at this standard that Jesus is establishing And I think we'll kind of just see that it's maybe just a little bit worse than we thought. And then second, we'll look at how Jesus provides a solution for this that is maybe quite a bit better than we feared. And then third, we'll look at what needs to be cut off or what needs to be plucked out so that we can experience the victorious Christian life. So first, let's talk about sexual purity. What is God's standard that is, that is much higher than we thought? There's a particular commandment in view. It's commandment number seven. 
that thou shalt not commit adultery. And so I got to thinking, well, what, what is adultery? What does it entail? What does it include? I got out my dictionary. It's an American Heritage Dictionary, and it defines adultery as voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and a partner other than the lawful spouse. Now, at first I said, this is a pretty good definition. I, I think that this is what most people think of when they hear the word adultery. But then when I thought about it for a bit, I, I think this definition, it kind of allows, shall we say, some hanky-panky to occur before we like call it adultery, right? For instance, if I went to the park this afternoon and there encountered my wife walking along hand in hand with another man, this would not meet the definition of adultery. And yet I can tell you that I would be quite upset about that. If a woman was to discover a photo of her husband kissing another woman, I don't think it would be out of line for her to call him a cheater. If we get a little bit more abstract, if a husband or wife is not really making themselves emotionally available to their spouse, but then develops a deep emotional connection with a coworker or a friend, there are many who would refer to that as an emotional affair. And of course, in today's world, we have the issues of pornography and online relationships where there is zero physical contact and yet our spouses would not be happy to discover those things. With all due respect to the fine folks at the American Heritage Dictionary, I don't think that we can limit this idea of adultery to merely voluntary sexual intercourse. I think this sin is actually way more complex than that. Now, in our tradition, we sometimes turn to this uh, Westminster Confession of Faith as a, as a guide. We don't hold it up to the standard of Scripture, but it is a guide for us to help us understand how Scripture has historically been interpreted. And the Westminster Divines, they met for several years in the mid-1600s and, and wrestled with theological questions. And one of the ones they wrestled with is the commandment number seven. And their diligent work can be found in the Westminster Larger Catechism, questions 138 and 139. Question 138 asks this, what are the duties required in this seventh commandment? And it goes on to say that those duties are chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior, and the preservation of it in ourselves and others, watchfulness over the eyes and all of the senses, temperance, keeping of chaste company, modesty and apparel, marriage by those that have not the gift of continency, that means you're not single, conjugal love and cohabitation, diligent labor in our callings, shunning all occasions of uncleanness and resisting temptations thereunto. He goes on in question 139 to say, or to answer the question, what are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? The sins forbidden are, besides the neglect of the duties required, adultery, fornication, rape, incest, 
sodomy, and all unnatural lusts, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections, all corrupt or filthy communications or listening thereunto, wanton looks, impudent or light behavior, immodest apparel, prohibiting of lawful and dispensing with unlawful marriages, allowing, tolerating, keeping of stews. Now that means prostitutes, not flight attendants. And it's resor- and resorting to them. And entangling vows of single life, undue delay of marriage, having more wives or husbands than one at, a- at the same time, unjust divorce or desertion, idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, unchaste company, lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancings, and stage plays, and all other provocations too, or acts of uncleanliness, either in ourselves or others. The Westminster Divines did a pretty thorough and exhausting job of compiling all of the aspects of sexual immorality and temptation from throughout Scripture. If you ever want to know what sexual immorality is, these are the questions you go to. They, like Jesus did, they realize that there's more involved in this commandment than just a surface-level definition. And I think it's a good reminder to us that this is a complicated matter, this business of avoiding being an adulterous person. I, I think that we all tend to reframe or simplify the law so that we can believe that we are actually keeping it. We might say, well, I haven't had sex with anyone that I'm not married to, and therefore I haven't broken the seventh commandment. Now, I know some of us can't even say that, but most of us can. And yet the bad news is that unless we really simplify the definition, as the dictionary has, none of us can claim to have perfectly kept the seventh commandment. And that is what Jesus is trying to establish in our passage today. In Matthew 27, you have heard it was said, you, or Matthew 5, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So let's begin by, by discussing just for a moment this phrase, lustful intent. This is a translation of a Greek word, epithemeo. It's not a bad translation at all, but in English, we lose a little bit of its emphasis. It could maybe more literally be translated as setting one's heart upon. And it has a kind of a connotation of desire or covetousness. Jesus is using it in the context of the heart. And in ancient Greek culture, the heart is not only the seat of all the emotions, but is also the seat of all thoughts. And so what we really have in view here is this idea of looking at another person on whom we have focused our emotions and thoughts specifically in regards to our sexual desire for them. Now, I think we should probably be really clear I don't think Jesus is talking about passing glances at a beautiful or a handsome person. I don't think he's talking about opinions we may hold about people that we know or like celebrities 
I think we can objectively look at someone and say, they're, oh, they're beautiful, they're attractive. And I think we can do that without having lustful intent. And yet Jesus is establishing a really high standard of fidelity. Perhaps an impossible standard. If we fantasize about someone, we fail to meet this standard. Certainly viewing pornographic materials falls short. Visiting a venue where people are performing lascivious acts, that's the same as committing adultery. Striking up a relationship with someone online can be problematic. Lusting after an actress or actor in a movie or television show, it's the same thing as committing adultery with that person. And this standard also means that we can't use the act of intercourse as the defining line either. Emotional affairs, kissing, hand-holding, or all of the things that we try to convince ourselves are not having sex, these all involve a setting of our heart upon a person. And if we are the person that we're kind of objectifying is married, well, that's adultery. But, but let's be clear, the 10th commandment is what prohibits coveting another person's spouse. Jesus is addressing the seventh commandment. And what he is teaching us is that the Pharisees' definition is too narrow. Theologian John Stott said it like this, Jesus' allusion is to all forms of immorality. To argue that the reference is only to a man lusting after a woman and not vice versa, or only to a married man and not an unmarried, since the offender is said to have committed adultery and not fornication, is to be guilty of the very casuistry. I had to look that one up. It means applying clever but unsound reasoning. It's to be guilty of the very casuistry which Jesus was condemning in the Pharisees. His emphasis is that any and every sexual practice which is immoral indeed is immoral also in look and in thought. So with this high of a standard, it's difficult to imagine that many people haven't broken the seventh commandment, at least in their hearts. And this is really bad news because this is one of the passages in the Bible that we point to when we say, how do we know that hell is real? Well, because Jesus says it was. And he does so in our passage today. Is Jesus implying that if one commits adultery or even just lusts, that they will go to hell? Yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. He's emphasizing it. He's listing like how extreme of measures we would have to take to even have the hope of keeping the seventh commandment. This is the whole point that he's making. See, the Pharisees were teaching people to be so focused on obeying the commandment. But Jesus is saying, you can't. You cannot keep this law in your own strength. In James 4, he says, we are an adulterous people. All of us. So what then? Does that mean we have no hope? No. No, because with Jesus, all things are possible. Those things that are not possible become possible. Christ's efficiency, we see that Jesus 
solution is better than we could have, uh, that we may have feared. You see, Jesus, he's able to sympathize with us. And he's made a way for us. Though we are adulterous, he's made a way for us to escape the punishment of hell. Listen to what the uh, writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. This is Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It's kind of hard to imagine Jesus being tempted by lust, right? Yet we know that he's fully human. He has a human body. He has human hormones. He has human emotions. Jesus was sometimes lonely. Jesus undoubtedly felt the need for human comfort, and his human body was, of course, capable of feeling sensation. Hebrews tells us that in every respect, he was tempted as we are. That means Jesus was tempted to be lustful. And yet he was without sin. Because he's also fully God. Jesus overcame all temptation and he lived a perfect, sinless life. He never once looked at another person with lustful intent. And he certainly never committed adultery or fornication with anyone. Jesus perfectly kept the seventh commandment. He was perfectly righteous. And as amazing as that is... Here's the truly astounding thing. Jesus gives his righteousness to us, those who are adulterous. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. See, we deserve to be thrown into the fires of hell because we cannot be faithful people. But if we believe in him, God takes our sin and he places it on the shoulders of Jesus. And then he takes Jesus' righteousness and he places that on our shoulders and he clothes us in Jesus' righteousness. How can this be? Well, because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But this is only kind of half of it. See, God is, God is not just content to forgive us for our sin and spare us from the fires of hell. He also wants to empower us to live a victorious Christian life. And so he sent his spirit for just that reason. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 and 18 say, Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And for this comes from God, who is the Spirit. And Galatians 5 tells us that as we walk in the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires 
of our sinful flesh. We can have that victorious life, but it involves kind of a cultural amputation. Now, I'd really be remiss if we just kind of ended the message right here without kind of addressing this shocking advice that Jesus gives that maybe we ought to mutilate and maim our bodies in order to overcome the temptation to lust. Uh, I would hope that it would go without saying that Jesus did not intend for anyone to take this literally. As I stated earlier, I think he's emphasizing the extreme methods that sinful people would have to employ to be fully obedient to this commandment. But I think he was also highlighting the connection between our sight and our sense of touch as, it's, as particularly important in our struggle for purity. Later on in the gospel, in the same gospel of Matthew, in I think chapter 18, he also adds feet to the list uh, of things that we might want to amputate. I think Jesus was using this obvious absurdity of the severe solution to drive home his point, to drive home his lesson. And the lesson is this. We need to take this very seriously and we need to cut out the things in our lives that cause us to stumble. Theologian John Stott wrote this. It's better to forego some experiences this life offers in order to enter the life which is life indeed. It is better to accept some cultural amputation in this world than risk final destruction in the next. So if it causes you to sin, that's the words that Jesus used, if it causes sin, then cut it out. So now before we, we look at some examples of how to do this, it's, it's kind of worth mentioning that not everyone is tempted by the same things. Not everyone sins in the same ways. And some people are more easily tempted by food and others by sex, others by drink, others by drugs, others by money, and so on and so on. So we need to resist trying to come up with some kind of one-size-fits-all, you know, definite set of rules something that's outside of what we see in Scripture, and then try to apply that to all Christians. What might be necessary for you may not be at all necessary for someone else. Romans 14 talks about this. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Weak, by the way, I'd love to say the Bible says that vegetarians are weak, but they're not. <laughs> it just, it's just saying if you, if you struggle with eating meat, that's a weakness you have. And, you know, you decide to eat vegetables. That's a way of overcoming that. So don't, don't get carried away there, guys. Jesus talks about the eyes. Now, we live in an age when we are bombarded with sexual imagery and ideology nearly constantly. We literally carry around screens in our pockets, and many of us are nearly, if not actually, addicted to staring at them. Unless we're extremely diligent and careful, these screens bring sexual images before us all the time, 
And then there are bigger screens around us almost everywhere we go. Our eyes are also used to read. We read news feeds, magazines, blogs, memes, and even occasionally books. If Jesus was giving this message in our day, he might have included cutting off an ear, uh, because so many of us now get our news from podcasts or we read audiobooks. Now, I don't want to sound too conspiratorial, but the world is putting out messages to us, and we see them every day. And when we binge Netflix or go to the movies or just watch ads, even during things as, as simple as sporting events, these messages are more and more sexually overt, presenting a view of human sexuality that is contrary to what we see in Scripture. And even the safe havens are fewer and fewer with even uh, organizations like Nickelodeon and Disney intentionally promoting sexual ideology and content that is directed to young children. I was listening to a podcast this week. A a young man was being interviewed, a man who uh, struggles with same-sex attraction, but who, through an amazing story of the grace of God, he became a Christian and left that lifestyle. He was talking about what he called the constant onslaught of the media that is pro-LGBTQ. He said he tells people all the time, we have to be aware of what's affecting our belief systems. Is it the word of God or is it the culture? If you just watched an hour of Netflix, you need to know that you've just been lied to, implicitly or explicitly. And now you need to read the Bible for an hour to be renewed in your mind. I think he's kind of on to something. Like I said before, I don't think we need hard and fast rules for everyone, but it kind of makes sense. As people who supposedly prioritize our walk with Christ, it's reasonable for us to be curating what we take in through our eyes to be filling our minds with truth at least as much, if not more, than we are exposing it to untruth. What would it look like for us to make a covenant with our eyes like Job did? Job 31, he said, I've made a covenant with my eyes. I won't look on a woman that's not my wife. To, what would it look like to not intentionally look at anything we know will spark temptation? Or, or to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ, as Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians 10. My challenge to you this week is to maybe keep track of how often you're taking in, you know, with your eyes if you're a reader or with your ears if you're a reader. How often are you taking in cultural messages that are contrary to Scripture or images that are overtly sexual? And then also keep track of, of how much you read or listen to things that are overtly scriptural. And then find someone you trust and kind of share the results with them and talk about any disparity that you might see. Jesus also talks about hands and feet. Jesus mentions hands and later feet. And, and I think what we do and where we go 
also affects how we are tempted to sexual sin. Consider like a young couple who's in love and they're trying to wait until their wedding night. Whether they're engaged or just dating, it matters where they are going together and what they are doing together. If they're often going to places where they're alone and it's dark, they're going to be tempted. If they're constantly touching each other, even in kind of innocent ways, they're going to be tempted. Now, again, I'm not suggesting hard and fast rules for every couple, but if purity is a goal, then we have to consider our hands and our feet. When I'm counseling people about resisting temptation, whether it's food or alcohol or drugs or gambling or sex, my advice is always the same. I always say this, make the fight at the boundaries. And there's a passage in scripture, it's, It was written by the wisest man who ever lived, King Solomon. He wrote it as advice to his sons about avoiding sexual temptation. And I'm going to read you a kind of shortened excerpt of it now. It comes from Proverbs 7. He says, it's to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. This is what he says. I have seen a young man lacking sense. That's how we are when we're young. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, or as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Sometimes I think we're like this young man who lacks sense. We know where the temptation lies in wait, and yet we go there at the time of night and darkness, walking right up to it. Maybe we think, man, I'll be strong enough to resist. But I think all too often, maybe we're hoping to be ensnared. Notice this foolish young man didn't really put up much of a fight. All at once, he followed her. The truth is his mind was made up when he left his house and pointed his feet in her direction. Making the fight at the boundaries means that we need to take the time to identify the places and activities that we ought to be avoiding because we know that they always lead us into temptation. And then we have to set a boundary there. I will not go to that place. I will not do that activity. Now, inevitably, we're going to be Uh, tempted to break those boundaries. But I can tell you, in my experience, 
that, that that temptation is way easier to overcome than the full-blown temptation that will almost certainly defeat me if I actually go to that place or do that activity. It's like, I think of it like a recovering alcoholic. He knows that he shouldn't step foot in a bar. Or the porn addict knows that he should never go online when he's alone. We don't have to be recovering addicts to have good boundaries. My challenge to you this week is consider the ways that you are tempted to lust. Are there any patterns there? Do you find yourself weakest in certain places or after certain activities? Find someone you trust and talk to them about these things and how you can set boundaries and get accountability. Church, I hope this message hasn't felt too preachy, but just in case it has, I want to wrap it up with a reminder that I've been down this road. And I know what it feels like. I know that Christian parents and even the church, that we can make it feel like sexual sin is the unforgivable sin. It's not. And I know this firsthand. We are all adulterous people to some degree. We betrayed God and we betrayed others. But he is a loving and a forgiving and a reconciling God. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted in this way. And he still chose to come and die for your sins. James 5 tells us if we confess our sins to one another, then we will be healed. I exhort you, come out of the darkness. It's much better in the light. And Jesus is right here waiting to embrace you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is not always easy to read. It's not always easy to live out. It's not always easy to comprehend. And Lord, I, I would venture to say that many, if not most of us in this room, have felt some level of failure in this area. Lord, would you send your spirit to us? Bring conviction where we need to feel conviction. Bring courage where we need to be encouraged. Bring comfort where we need to be comforted. Lord, we want to live pure and holy lives, but we know that won't happen perfectly until you return. So Lord, come back soon. And in the meantime, help us to be faithful and walk in the spirit and repent quickly when we fail. And we know that you'll forgive us. We love you. We pray in your name. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.